Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. If these resources have been a blessing to you, we would be honored if you would consider making a donation to our church building fund. To learn more about this unique challenge ahead of us and to partner with us for a gospel legacy in Missoula, please visit achurchbuilding.com. That's achurchbuilding.com. So good to be with you on this Resurrection Sunday. Um, Welcome to all those who are joining us, kids who are sitting with their families. Um, Let's dive into prayer uh, once more before we look at God's word. Uh, Lord Jesus, we have so much to be grateful for in your word. Um, And in this season where uh, there is a a fear of what we don't have or what might be coming, the gospel reminds us of what we know for certain. Certain things that bring us uh, feelings of thankfulness, of gratitude, of security uh, amidst all the things we don't know. And so, Lord, right now, we submit ourselves, as the church has done for thousands of years, to the good news of your gospel as that which sustains our souls. And we pray this in your name. Amen. My wife and I have recently found uh, a podcast, which is a behind-the-scenes look at one of our favorite shows. And one episode really caught our attention. It was an episode where the hosts introduced us to what is called the show Bible. And the show Bible is this massive book which concludes every fact and everything you need to know about a character as the story goes on. And so as the writers write something about a character, it gets written in this book. So for instance, if a character is a vegetarian, that'll go in the book under her character so that writers will know later on in the script that this character shouldn't be eating meat. The show also has one particular relationship that unfolds over the course of the series and the two characters end up being married in the end, and so you could go look at those characters and you would see in the show Bible that this character marries that character. And it's called the show Bible because comprehensive fact books are often called the Bible on whatever the subject is, be it photography or cooking or a show. And while those monikers and those names might help us understand the nature of those books as kind of tell-all books, I think that ethos, that uh, emotion kind of inhibits how we understand the Christian Bible that God has given to us. When you think of the Bible, what do you think it is? Is it just some book filled with truth statements and helpful tips to not get lost in the wood or bumped off track in your journey of life? For many of us, I think we do have a presupposition that communicates an aspect of that. And often, because of that, we we open it up in our devotions and we try to find some sort of truth claim about ourselves or about God that we can then neatly apply to our lives for the day. And we become frustrated when we fail to find such neatly packaged nuggets. But, take for instance this show. If I really wanted to introduce you to it, if I really wanted you to have a strong affection for it and to like it, I wouldn't just take this show Bible and hand it to you and say, here, read all the facts you need to know are in this book. Instead, what I would do is I would introduce you to the show. Because while the show Bible might tell you that so-and-so will marry so-and-so, knowing it as a fact is completely different than seeing it as a story that invites you in. In fact, just as the facts of the show Bible are really understood in the context of the whole story, in fact, that's what they exist for, so too are all of the truth statements, all of the propositions, all of the helpful tips in Scripture, which are in here, they're really only understood fully in light of the whole story of Scripture. And this Bible, this book, is a true story. A true story that when you encounter it, causes you to interact with it, to engage with it. And like any good book or movie, 
It's only when you understand the full picture of the story that the moments of confusion or the moments that just didn't seem right when you first encountered them begin to finally make sense. And during our Easter series, we have begun to look at the story of Scripture from beginning to end. And its central theme, the person and work of Jesus Christ. Last Sunday, we looked at Jesus, this theme throughout the story of Jesus as King. On Friday, we looked on Good Friday at Jesus as Lamb. And this morning, we're going to continue making sense of the Bible by making sense of Jesus by looking at another aspect of Jesus. And this is so important because in making sense of the Bible, we can often make sense of ourselves and we can make sense of the confusion we live in and the times we live in and the stories and the narratives and all the things we encounter in our world. And today, we are going to look at an aspect of Jesus which was just read for us in Romans chapter 8. And that theme is the theme of Jesus as God's Son who invites us into God's family. Jesus as God's Son who invites us into God's family. And here we are on Easter and you're joining us. And to hear that Jesus is God's Son who invites us into God's family might not be new information to you. It might be truth. It might be a presupposition. It might be a fact that you have long known in your life. But as we pause this Easter Sunday, we realize that this truth in the context of our story is the good news that all of us need to hear. So what we're going to do today in our time remaining for this sermon is kind of look at the story of the Bible in four parts. First, we're going to see the fight for the inheritance. Then we're going to see the failures of the firstborn. And then after that, we're going to look at Jesus as the faithful firstborn. And then lastly, by way of application, we're going to look at the fruits of the firstborn. What does this change for us? And it's important to start here because just as last week, if we wanted to see the king as beautiful, we had to understand the nature of his kingdom. So too, it's when we understand the inheritance of this family, this family of God, that sonship through Jesus Christ can really become joyful. And this is our first point today, the, jo- or the fight for the inheritance. The fight for the inheritance. And this might seem, be kind of like an odd phrase, but our culture actually understands this, the allure of the inheritance quite well. As wonderful as Rich Daddy Warbucks' affection was towards little orphan Annie, it was the invitation into the ecosystem of his wealth and of his home which makes Annie's adoption so captivating. Similarly, what indebts us culturally to stories like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory is the transformation that comes when Charlie is rescued out of poverty and isolation by becoming heir to the Wonka fortune. That inheritance brought to him not only riches, but it actually brought to Charlie purpose, meaning, and belonging. And the reason why our imagination is so ripe and so attracted to these stories is because our hearts were made to long for a relationship which makes sense of us and a relationship that blesses us. Relationships that actually complete us and add to us. We were made to desire an inheritance. And this is actually where the Bible starts. In the first page of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 1, we see that God created the world. And he created Adam and Eve, the first male and female, in his image. And not only did God just create the world out of nothing, 
But we see the nature of this father is that he invited Adam and Eve into his own inheritance. He was sharing what he had with them. And this inheritance includes two pieces, which are really important pieces if we're going to follow this narrative. The inheritance included, not as two separate realities, but as one cohesive reality split into two parts, a spiritual or relational inheritance and a physical inheritance. Spiritually, Adam and Eve were created as image bearers, meaning they exclusively had access to a relationship with God that plants and animals and rocks and waves didn't. God was inviting them relationally into his person. But then physically, God gave his image bearers a tangible inheritance. He gave them something to steward and something to enjoy. This was the Garden of Eden. And just as it would happen now, Adam and Eve were given this inheritance by God, and he gave them this twofold spiritual and physical blessing so that they could steward it faithfully, so that they would take care of it and use it to the fullest of their ability. And in Genesis chapter 1, we actually look at this eternally generous father and the nature of his inheritance. This is in Genesis 1, verses 26 through 31. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heaven, over the livestock, and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you. See, there's this inheritance language. I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth. And every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heaven, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw that he had what he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. So the inheritance that Adam and Eve got in the garden was far more than a chocolate factory. He actually gave them the very kingdom of God. They had it all. They had a perfect relationship with God. They had a perfect relationship with each other. And then as their physical gift, they had this garden that would meet for them every need they had. Everything was going to naturally yield to their needs. It was going to give them fruit. God's children were taken care of by God's inheritance. To be a child of a God like this is to have every need met by the generosity of the God who invites you into his blessing. Yet as perfect as this was, as soon as creation happened, we began to see a fight for that inheritance, a fight for the blessing, a fight for the family. The serpent, as we read in Genesis chapter 3, crept into the garden and he convinced Adam and Eve, he deceived them into thinking that God their father was holding out. That he had some storehouse of wealth that he was refusing to give to his children. And he tried to convince them, as he tries to convince us, that actually God was not an inheritance, but God was a hindrance. 
If they truly wanted to flourish in this garden kingdom, they had to solve the God problem. They had to get around this father who was keeping back from them what they really want. And Adam and Eve, in that moment and in their deceit, thought that if they could get rid of their relational inheritance and just keep the physical inheritance, that they would be liberated. And so they disobeyed God. And in that moment, they lost everything they ever wanted. And there's great irony here. Because God told Adam and Eve that they could have every tree in the garden except one tree. But it was from that one tree, the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil, the tree that God says, don't eat of it, it's bad fruit. Or don't eat of it, that's safe for me. He says, don't eat of it and you'll die. You'll die if you eat from it. It's that one tree that they were deceived to take for themselves. And in this is the irony of sin. Maybe irony that you've felt. Because the truth is, in that moment that Adam and Eve ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, in all reality, there was nothing in the whole created world which was not theirs. They had every tree that God had made for them to eat, plus they had taken from the one tree that was not theirs. They had the dominion they thought would free them. And yet, in getting everything they wanted by worldly standards, they lost everything. Maybe you've had an experience like that in your own life where you finally get, you finally vanquish yourself from whatever you think the problem is and you find yourself only lacking because we were never made to just have the physical blessing. They rejected the spiritual one. They rejected God as their good father and as a result, they didn't gain the kingdom. It was taken from them. They lost their inheritance. Their bellies kept the fruit but they lost everything else. And they were removed from Eden. They were taken away from all they worked hard to gain. And God told them that if they were to come back, their sin, their rebellion, would cost them their life. And from this moment onward, we begin to see, from Genesis 3 through the rest of Scripture, this fight for people to get back into the inheritance of God, to get back to the blessing. And right away in Genesis chapter 4, Adam and Eve had two sons, Cain the first and Abel the second. And they were going and they were offering sacrifices. And the Bible says in Genesis 4 that Cain offered a better, or that Abel offered a better sacrifice than Cain. Abel pleased God. Abel got a glimpse of Eden again. He was increasing his relationship with God. God was pleased with him. But Cain couldn't stand that. So he went and killed Abel. Why is that? Have you ever thought, why is that? Why is that something that Cain would do? At this point, there's not a lot of things to cause sin. It's just him and his family. He killed Cain because whether he wanted to please God or not, what he wanted to experience was the pleasure of God. And if someone else, like Abel, was going to steal that from him, he would solve the problem on his own. He was going to fight for the pleasure of God, the experience of the pleasure of God, because he knew that that's ultimately what he wanted. And God reached into this mess in Genesis chapter 12, this fighting, this striving for an inheritance that went to Babel. And now God appears to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, and he says, I am going to recreate a people, and I am once again going to invite you into my inheritance. I'm going to invite you into my blessing. The promise of an inheritance was renewed. 
And so Abraham was going to be, in a sense, this new Adam. And from him, physically, this line was going to be blessed. And so Abraham is given a promise that then goes to his son, Isaac, his only son. And things are going pretty okay at this point. But then Isaac has not one, but two sons. He has Esau, who's the firstborn, and he has Jacob, who's the secondborn. And they're twins, but they came out at different times because that's how twins happen. And then um, in this moment, there's no one to laugh at me at that. But uh, in this moment, this problem is inserted because there's two sons. But there's one inheritance. And at that point in time, the inheritance, the greater portion, was always given to the firstborn. And Jacob knew that Esau was set up to get this wonderful promise, this blessing from his father. And so he began to deceive. He deceived his father. He dressed up like Esau. And he went and he stole the blessing. He stole the inheritance from Esau by pretending to be him. And this is a really odd story when you read it in Scripture. But we know this temptation, don't we? How many of us have seen friends or family um, get an inheritance, get money from a family member, or come across some distant connection that bestows to them some sort of wealth or even just opportunity? And while we'd never admit it, and our Facebook statuses show joy and our faces show joy, when we run into that person and that person is not us, we generally are selfish in our response to it. We're kind of upset that they got it and we didn't. We become a little bit conceited and a little bit angry. And to show this, this happens all the time. There could be this extremely successful business person that's on the, pick, the, the cover of Fortune magazine, but as soon as we find out that business mogul got their start by some grant from a rich family member, we almost culturally completely write off all of their success, don't we? Well, if I had that, I could have done that. And we do this because we feel in our hearts they did nothing to deserve this. What makes them special that they should get this? They didn't earn it. Why do our hearts do this? Why do we have this nagging selfishness, this fight inside of us? Well, because like Cain did, because like Jacob and Esau did, we know our hearts are hardwired to fight for an inheritance which brings us blessing, which completes us, which promises us safety and security. But just like them... We don't understand the nature of the inheritance. You see, from a worldly perspective, and certainly from an evolutionary perspective, your attempts to find your inheritance, whatever you think that to be, actually affects my own attempts. We live in a finite world with limited resources, which means as soon as you get your wealth, as soon as you get your power, as soon as you get your sexual partner, as soon as you get your spouse, you're actually decreasing my ability to get mine. That's life in a finite world. You're a threat to me. And when we fail to see the infinite God himself as the inheritance, there's always going to be conflict between men. People are always seen as a threat at some level to what it is you want. Take Missoula, for example. One thing Missoulians share in common is they love Missoula. And we'll post pictures and we'll brag about it. But as soon as people move up here, we're angry at them. (laughs) Why? Because even though it's the biggest guy's state, we know another person on the trail means that it's not just me on the trail. Another person in line at Big Dipper means that, hey, better off with a shorter line at Sweet Peaks. We're always realizing that there are limited resources. 
And that's why Christians often throw around the term legalist to those who are seemingly following Jesus better. Because if we don't understand the wonder of grace, people who are growing in holiness are seen as a threat to our own. But the inheritance that God himself would provide doesn't require deceit because it's not based on what is finite. It's based on the infinite goodness of God himself. There is enough of this inheritance for all of God's children. And we know this because shortly after uh, Jacob receives the blessing, even through deceit, God broadens the blessing and he changes Jacob's name to Israel. And he says, Israel, this corporate man, Anyone who is from Israel's line, you are now the people of God. And God's blessing, God's inheritance goes to all the people. God solved the problem of which child gets the blessing. And he says, my people get the blessing through the line of Jacob. Jacob's offspring was going to have their needs met by the father. But this introduces the second problem and and the, the second saga of our story. And this is the failures of the firstborn. God broadened the promise to make sure everyone knew there was enough to go around, that you weren't going to be left out if you belonged to God's people. But the problem was that Israel can't stay out of trouble. In fact, continuing on in Genesis, we see that Jacob, Israel, his sons, take and sell off one of their brothers named Joseph into slavery in Egypt. Why did they sell off Joseph? Because Joseph had pleasure with their father, that they didn't have. The sin of Cain was still strong. Joseph was a threat to their own inheritance. He challenged what they thought they could gain, and so they sold him to Egypt, and because of that sin, what happened is eventually the entire family of Israel goes down to Egypt and grows into slaves. That's what you need to see about sin. Sin promises that any given action liberates you, but it only ends up to slave you. Those brothers thought they were fixing the problem by getting rid of Joseph, but acting in sin always enslaves us. But this is where God goes to his people who are in slavery in Exodus chapter 4. And look at what he says to Pharaoh in verse 22 in the first part of 23. So he's speaking to Moses here. He says, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go, that he might serve me. Even though Israel can't stay out of trouble, even though Israel's sin had brought them into slavery, God was going to bring them out. Not so they would be slaves to sin, but that they would be servants to God. God had something better for his people, a better inheritance that didn't look like slavery and bricks without straw. It looked like the promised land. A land where God's people would once again get their inheritance. There would be God's place living in God's presence as God's people. And in Deuteronomy 26, God makes it clear. He says that this land is going to be their inheritance. It is going to be a heritage due to God's people. But there's a caveat to this inheritance. Because you are God's children by grace, to keep this inheritance, you must act As my children, if you want this blessing, be my children. This is what Moses says to them in Deuteronomy, what God himself says to them in Deuteronomy 6, verses 1 through 5. Listen to the conditions. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land, that's the inheritance, which you're going over to possess. 
What's the stipulation? That you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son, and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you, all the days of your life, that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, promised you in the land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. God says, look at this inheritance. You are going to multiply. There's going to be land filled with milk and honey, two things that are natural. That's why the Bible always talks about it. It's not, you know, smoothies and Chick-fil-A where we have to make these things. A land flowing with milk and honey are naturally reoccurring products in the bounty of the land. God has this goodness for you if you would obey. But again, grace proceeds. It was grace that God chose Abraham. It was grace that God brought them out of Egypt. It was by grace God was going to bring them into the promised land. But if you fail to respond to grace, if you run from the promises of God, you will have run from the promises of God. You will have run from the inheritance itself. And sure enough, just like we do almost daily, the people got into the promised land. But just like Adam, just like Jacob, just like us, they misunderstood the nature of the inheritance. They tried once more to satisfy themselves with the physical peace and neglect the spiritual and relational peace. They got the land. They got what they thought they wanted. And so they turned to other gods. They turned to different inheritances. And they realized that there's no inheritance without both pieces. And this is what's actually at the heart of all of our sin. Every promise of sin is the promise of Eden without the God of Eden. It says, enjoy all the good things that God has made, but enjoy them apart from God. The problem is, not only does this fail to satisfy us, and we know that all too well, but it also continues to compound our own guilt as rebellious children. And that rebellion needs to be punished for our own good. It's the same reason I discipline my children, so that they might know that sin is dangerous and death lurks inside its door. So what does God do to fix these people who keep getting sidetracked by one half of the inheritance? He removes them from the land. He sends them into exile. He kicks them out of the promised land. And look at how this rebellion is described in Jeremiah chapter 3, verses 19 through the first part of 22. I said how I would set you among my sons and give you a pleasant land, a heritage most beautiful of all nations. And I thought you would call me my father and would not turn from following me. Surely as a treacherous wife leaves her, leaves her husband, so you have been treacherous to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. A voice on the bare heights is heard, weeping and pleading with the sons of Israel because they have perverted their way. They have forgotten the Lord their God. Return, O faithless sons, and I will heal your faithlessness. You see, inheritances are attractive because we know what they buy. They buy security, rest, belonging, safety. And here God is saying to his people, I have given you all of that. If only you would call me father. But they won't obey. 
And God says, if you just turn, if you just come back, I will bless you. I will heal your faithlessness. But time and time again, they cashed out on their blessings. Anytime God gave them an inch, they took a mile and they ran the other way. And at this point, I hope this story is starting to make sense in your own hearts. What this world desires is a relational blessing with God, which can only be found with him but our sinful hearts keep us from ever getting there. They make us rebellious children. In Scripture, in the Old Testament, this cost Israel the land. But this rebellion, this running from God, this refusing to worship and obey Him will not cost you any piece of physical land. It will cost you your life. This rebellion will be judged. But this isn't where the Bible stops. God promised to do something because he is a loving father. God promised to work for blessing where the people of God failed and would not obey. He's like, give me one person. Give me one person who obeys and I will bless all of you. And no one can do it. Not King David, not King Solomon, not any of the prophets, not Moses. No one could do it. No one could give them this blessing. But look at what happens in Psalm 89. I'm going to read first from verse 19. And then verse 26 through 28. Verse 19, it says, Of old you spoke in a vision and said to your your godly one, and said, I have granted help to the one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. Verse 26, this chosen one, he shall cry to me, You are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever, and my covenant will stand firm on him. God is going to bring a faithful firstborn, one who in his obedience will bless and fulfill the covenant for all of God's people. There is hope for God's people that someone, some faithful firstborn will finally obey And get the inheritance. What does this look like? The Old Testament continues. Zechariah 12, verse 10. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace. He's talking about this time of heart change. And pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, They shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps for a firstborn. And then chapter 13, verse 1, he says this. On that day, that day when the firstborn is pierced, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse themselves from sin and from uncleanness. At some point, God was going to act in mercy and grace. How was he going to act? At some point, Israel was going to look at God, and God was going to look like someone who is pierced, like a firstborn who had died. And in that piercing, there would be a fountain to solve the problem of faithlessness. The inheritance would be secured forever. And this, so obviously, this Easter season points to the one who on Friday was pierced for our transgressions, Jesus Christ, who is God. 
God was pierced in the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, because this is the third act. Jesus is the faithful firstborn. Jesus is the faithful firstborn. In the opening chapters of the gospel, we read of Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, born as fully God and born as fully man, the firstborn of Mary, but part of the virgin birth means that he is not just the firstborn of Mary. Johnny shared this in Colossians 1, verse 15, where Paul says this, he, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Here is a unique firstborn, one who was never born in eternity because he always existed to God, as son to God and existed as a firstborn in status, but now born as a man. The unique firstborn of God had finally come. He is going to be faithful to obey where Israel as firstborn could not obey. He was going to be whole so that his people might be restored. And there's one particular parable, a parable I'm sure you've heard, that I always wrestled in understanding, despite how simple it might seem, uh, it's perhaps my dumbness, until this theme of Jesus as firstborn really became clear. And there's a pastor by the name of Ed Clowney who, who helped me see this, and now you can't unsee it in Scripture. And this is the story of the prodigal son. Uh, the context for this passage actually starts in Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 2. And this is what it says. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. That's Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So the context is this. Jesus has come, this Jesus who claims to be a Messiah, And he's not hanging out with the Pharisees, who were kind of the self-elected heads of Israel. They were the spiritual leaders. They were, in a very sense, the firstborn of Israel. They were the ones who would steer them into the right standing with God. But here is Jesus hanging out with sinners. And the sin of Cain is still there. Because if Jesus is willing to hang out with sinners, what does that say about Pharisees? These sinners are a threat to their own works, to their own righteousness. And in the face of this tension, Jesus tells this story. Begins in verse 11. And Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of the property that's coming to me. And the father divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods, that's the slop that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything Already, in looking at what we saw in the Old Testament, this is a familiar story, isn't it? Isn't this the story of Israel? Here we have a son who looked at his father as nothing more than a cosmic vending machine and has the audacity to go to him and to say, give me what's mine. The irony is is none of it was his at that time. It was all the father's. Why? Because the father was living. 
Inheritances are only given when someone has died. And so what this son is doing is he's not going out and he's asking dad for a small business loan. He's going up to his father and he's saying, I wish you were dead. You're better off to me dead. Give me what's coming to me. Give me my money. And the father gave it to him. And the son took it. And he ran far away. And as we read this story, I don't think he ran far away because he needed to find opportunity. He didn't just flee because he needed to get to a big city. He fled because he, just like Adam, just like Jacob, tried to take the relation or the physical piece of the inheritance and saw that that was only going to thrive with relational distance from his father. He wanted to get away. He was going to split the inheritance, and in so doing, he was going to find the world he always wanted. And that's the danger of sin. As you can imagine, this guy had a good time with that money for a season. We love that. If you win the lottery, how many of you haven't thought through what you would do if you got that inheritance? And yet, famine comes. And soon, his inheritance is gone. And he, just like Israel, has now indebted himself to someone else. He looks and has this moment, this wonderful moment, this coming to his senses where he's feeding pigs and his own stomach is growling. And he says, who am I? I was once a child given an inheritance and now I have nothing and the pigs are eating better than me. The one to whom everything was given, it says, no one gave him anything. And there's this wonderful realization he has in verses 17 through 19. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And it finally clicked for the son. What I pray will click for you. What never clicked in the Old Testament for Israel, that the inheritance isn't what the father has. The inheritance was the father himself. It made sense to him. You can't separate the physical from the relational. They belong together. But then he begins to practice this apology. Father, I have sinned before heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be counted as your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And if you really think about it, I think this is the most tragic prayer in all of Scripture. Because it's the prayer of a person who understands, rightfully so, the size and weight of his or her her own sin, but does not understand the grace of God. This prodigal son realizes that his relationship with the father is what makes the physical inheritance so wonderful, but he also realizes this, that his sin has burned the bridge to sonship. He certainly can't go back, at least as a son, But if even to be a slave in the father's house, it would be better than a free man apart from the father. So he rehearses this apology, an apology that maybe you've said to God. That God, I don't deserve to be in your family, but I will work my butt off to earn my keep. 
We go and we begin to rest on our works and what we can produce, and he rehearses it all the way back, like maybe you have, like anxiously toiling, like looking at your checklist of righteousness, hoping that this is going to be enough. And he says, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Let me be a hired slave. And he's, he's preparing himself just like you would if you had an important conversation to have. And then he finally gets to the driveway of his father. And this is what happens in verses 20 through 24. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, here's his apology, here's his justification. Father, I've sinned against heaven before you. I am no longer to be worthy to, call, to be called your son. Stop. He doesn't even get to the part of work, of labor. Why? Because grace interjects itself. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they, that is all who were there, began to celebrate. Before the son can finish the apology, he is accepted and a feast is thrown and he is given things from the father's house. Meaning, once again, this rebellious son is being clothed out of the inheritance of the father. The father is giving his property to this son. But this is where I wrestled the most because what about the son's rebellion? And I don't mean this because I want to besmirge the son who's fallen away. I bring this up because I know I am the son who's fallen away. And when I go to God, I want to ask, but what about that which I've done? What about my sin? What about my problem? What about my rebellion? How do I know when I come back to this same father that there will be grace enough for me? How do I know that this will be my acceptance by the father? And we know this because this isn't where the story ends. Because at this point, we're introduced to the older son. We're introduced to the firstborn. Luke chapter 15, verse 25. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And the servant said to him, Your brother has come. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But the brother was angry and refused to go in. His father came out. I love that. Father came out and entreated him. But the son answered his father, Look, these many years I've served you and I've never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you kill the fattened calf for him? And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So I love this because the story compiles. Here was the older son exactly where he should have been, in the field, working. That's where the younger son should have been. Instead of a field with pigs, he should have been in the field of the father, working. Why? Because that's what faithful sons do. 
And while this older son is in the field, he begins to see a commotion. And he knows at this point that the inheritance has already been divided. When bro left town, he legally cashed out on everything which was his, which means this older brother, this firstborn, knew that everything the father had would one day rightfully, wholly belong to him. He had to share with no one. And so just like maybe you would, he looked at all the good things the father had, and he kind of checked this inventory checklist of what would be his. And there's this robe. People, when you read the Bible, people really love robes back then. And so the firstborn knows that there's this robe, He's like, that's going to be mine one day. But then he sees a servant carrying the robe across a field. And then the ring, which was going to be his ring, his ring of belonging, his ring of inheritance, is being packaged up and put in a box with a bunch of party decorations. And then the fattened calf, which was going to be the barbecue feast for his own inheritance, is being led across the field, and he says, what is going on? And then he looks and sees to whom all of this is being given. And it is his no good, dirty, rotten, rebellious, prodigal brother. What would you do if you were this older brother? Probably what this one does. He became angry. And he went to his father and he says, look, all these years I've served you. I've never disobeyed. Never ran away. Never abandoned you. Never sinned against you. Never sinned against heaven. And yet you didn't even give me a goat to sacrifice and eat with my friends. But when this son of yours came, the one who shamed you, the one who mocked you, the one who squandered your wealth on whiskey and women, the one who said to you, I wish you were dead, you pulled out all the stops. And the father says, don't you know that all that is mine is yours? This older son did what all the older sons of Israel did. They began to think the inheritance was finite and limited. But the inheritance belongs to the Father, the infinite Father. So why is Jesus sharing this story with Pharisees who's upset that Jesus is hanging out with sinners? Because Jesus is showing them that he is the true firstborn. Jesus is the older brother who understood that God was sufficient to provide an inheritance. He was the older brother who never disobeyed, who never ran away from home, but was eternally the beloved son of God, the second person of the Trinity. But he was the older brother who didn't fear sharing what he and he alone had earned, but instead offered it up for us, his sinning brothers and sisters. See, there's this wonderful contrast The firstborn brother here says, all the father has is mine. Stay out. But our great firstborn brother Jesus says in John 16, 15, all the father has is mine, and I give it to you. Jesus came to find us. He left his throne in heaven and was born of a virgin so that he might die as a sinner in your place so that you can be brought back to God himself, that you could be brought back to the relational and the physical God who was meant to satisfy your souls. And it was by his blood that he did it. Jesus gave up more for us to be brought back to God than we can ever imagine. But that's what Jesus as the faithful firstborn came to do. This is what Paul talks about in Romans 8. 
verses 14 through 17. For all those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with us in our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs of God. And here it is. Here's our faithful brother, fellow heirs with Christ. We share everything with this brother. Because he gave everything for us. Heirs with Christ. Sons of God. This is no gospel of cost or cheap grace. This hope of an inheritance is the costly work of our greater brother. And this is the free gift for you. Free for you. Costly for Jesus. That's the gospel. If you've never realized that you're the one far off, I pray that today you would. Or if you've been the one who realizes you're the one who's far off, you don't have a right to sonship, so you think you might earn your way back into the Father's house, may Jesus himself interject and say, you cannot, but I can do the work for you. And I can share what is mine. And you could come back the Father will embrace you. And he will say, my son who is dead is now alive. The son who is lost is now found. And you can find peace. And this is where I just want to show us briefly here in closing the fruits of the firstborn. Why is this the best news you could ever hear? Why is this the best story that you can interact with? Because here we sit on Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, the day when we remember Jesus, the firstborn didn't stay dead, but he rose again. Why? Because his inheritance wasn't in his finite body. His inheritance was in the infinite God who raised him from the dead with glory. And here we see the first fruit. For those who are covered by the blood of the firstborn, for those who are his brothers and sisters, you have a future resurrection. Romans 6.5 says this, For if we have been united with Jesus in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Because Jesus was raised from the dead, so too will we who are co-heirs with him also be raised from the dead. This isn't fantasy. This isn't Narnia. This is real life. We will rise again physically. Why is this important? Because it means the inheritance we have now relationally through Jesus. But one day it'll come physically too. One day the whole of the inheritance will be complete only in Jesus Christ. It is in Jesus that nothing gets withheld and that God will one day raise us up in physical bodies in a physical new kingdom for all eternity. And as we sit in homes displaced by a deadly disease, we are reminded that the hope of an empty tomb sustains even an empty church. There is better yet to come. And for those in this time of social distancing are reminded of what relationships we do not share. Consider a second fruit, that those who by the firstborn are made brothers, you have a future family. Read with me Hebrews 12, 22 through 24. But you have come to Mount Zion, so this is speaking of the future again, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, that is the greater inheritance to the innumerable angels and festal gatherings, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, 
and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteousness made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the spiritual blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Do you see it? It's everywhere, isn't it? This Jesus was the brother who shared with us, who did not consider us a threat. And when we get to that great new physical and spiritual reality in heaven, what will you be counted as? The assembly of the firstborn. You will belong to this family forever. Jesus has solved the problem of threats by showing that he has provided abundantly a covenant good enough for you and good enough for me. What does this look like now? This looks like the church, which is an odd point of application while no one's here. And it looks like gathering as the assembly of the firstborn here. But there's a problem. We are not a resurrected firstborn assembly yet. We have brokenness. We are susceptible to diseases. We will speak wrongly against each other. We will harm others. We'll be part of a broken process. But when we gather together as the family of God's firstborn, we are getting, I want you to hear this, we are getting as close as we can to that inheritance. It is the closest glimpse to Eden you will ever have here within these walls of a church. And so let us submit ourselves to this. And as we do this and as we grow together, we remind each other of the eternal hope we have in the Son. This is the last point. This is the end. This is the end of the story that makes sense of your story. You have desires, you have hopes, you have wants, and you have needs that you cannot solve. But Jesus has come to offer them for you. He has come to offer an inheritance that can't be lost by your works because it wasn't gained by your works. And we invite you to believe, to repent, to believe, and to worship this Jesus. Revelation 21, verses 1 through 7. A picture into the end of all things. And look at our hope. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, here's the physical piece, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. There's the spiritual. And look, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. The Inheritance is ours through the firstborn. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down. <laughs> For these words are trustworthy and true. May this message not escape us. He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, this inheritance. And I will be his God and he will be my son. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, 
it is no cliche to say the gospel changes all of our life. And I know my heart. I've seen hearts in our church. I see hearts of my own family. But I don't know the depth of other hearts. But what I know is this is what you have given for the hope of our hearts. And Lord, I pray today that on this resurrected morning that there would be hearts hearing this word where for the first time in their lives it is quickened to life by faith in the firstborn. And Lord, I pray that those who have already been awoken by this wonderful act of mercy, that we would rejoice and that we would leave our own field and take up work with this firstborn for the glory of his kingdom for all eternity. We pray this in your name. Amen.